You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. What those asterisks stand for, that's a good question. I'll let you guys be creative. Um, but the reason I kind of use this, uh, you know, uh, kind of grab you, you know, slap you in the face title is because supportive dermatology is a relatively new and fledgling field. Most people probably are doing some of it already and don't realize it, uh, but there's a lot of opportunity to help a very large uh, patient population that often goes uh, kind of under the radar uh, because they don't even get to us. They don't even, they're not, it's not even a, a thought to send uh, these patients to us. So in the next hour or so, my plan is to kind of go over some of the more common and also some of the more specific reactions we see uh, to various uh, various cancer therapies, uh, but also to think about the cancer patient not when they're getting treated, but also beyond, because there are sequelae that can uh, perpetuate throughout these patients' lives that I will guarantee you no one told them about before they started their cancer treatment. These are my disclosures. None have anything to do with what I'll be speaking about today. So these are our objectives. You know, I want you at the end of the day to really appreciate the importance of recognizing, managing, and possibly even preventing the dermatologic uh, manifestations of cancer care and, and survivorship. Um, there are some unique, but also some just very broad uh, types of reactions that can occur during cancer care. Uh, it's important to keep your differential broad and not just pigeonhole and say, oh, it's gotta be this because the patient's on this drug. So keep that differential beyond just what you know you read about you know, in the blurbs from the various Derm News, Derm Times, whatever lay Derm uh, media is out there. And ultimately, my hope is that we can improve communication between the oncology team and the dermatology team because there's a big disconnect there. Uh, I guarantee you they're not really thinking about us and including us in that, you know, what they call chemo camp or chemo boot camp uh, or classes before someone starts uh, cancer therapy, and we should really be at the table. So the good news is trends are going down in cancer mortality. We are beating cancer back. So yay for us and yay for science. Um, and there's a good reason for this. We have emerging treatments that are not just nuclear weapons. You know, that's really what chemo is. It just kills everything that replicates at a speed beyond a snail. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why hair, skin, and nails are Im impacted. But we have these targeted therapies going after the biological underpinnings of these different types of cancers. They are personalized. That is the idea behind personalized medicine. The problem is that these are somewhat off-target, that a lot of these targets that are overexpressed by cancer are overexpressed in our skin. You know, one way to think about skin, hair, and nails, it's like one giant tumor. I mean, it kind of, there are a lot of similarities. Turns over quickly, has a high metabolic demand. That's cancer. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of these targets, both for chemo, which is pretty nonspecific, uh, versus these very targeted biologics, very often the skin is a bystander in this therapy. Now, uh, this data is even somewhat a little outdated at this point. That's how it always kind of works. Like you get these numbers, and it's usually from several years before. Um, but with this increase uh, in survivorship comes an increase in survivorship. Patients are surviving. They're going on into this bucket term of survivorship, which means they probably still have an increased risk of cancer and skin cancer at that, but also perpetual skin issues that emerge during their treatment and then continue onward throughout that survivorship. Um, so we're seeing more and more cancer survivors, more and more cancer diagnoses, which I don't see, think will change anytime soon. So that's more opportunity for us to make a difference. Um, 
in a lot of the trials for these new drugs, whether it be a new biologic or even seeing the emergence of FDA approvals of combo therapy, we're seeing that in melanoma. The FDA is approving the combination of two drugs. We're also seeing innumerable skin side effects. I mean, I feel like almost every other day there's some case report being published about some new unique side effect to a cancer therapy. So these numbers will continue to rise. So this is kind of the litany. I mean, actually, there's the short list of different kind of more common rather than more esoteric things that can happen to your cancer patient who's being treated by oncology. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of these. Now, we also, I think nowadays, we think about quality of life, QOL, uh, QOL as a huge part, not only of what we read about in the literature, what we think about, we should always be thinking about this with our patients, but these measures are starting to play a role in how we get medications for patients. We can write a letter to an insurance company and use a quote, like any one of these, to argue why a patient should be receiving a medication that the insurance will not cover, or the copay is like $5,000. So I think, getting an appreciation of how even something as simple as xerosis from a targeted or chemotherapy um, can impact someone's quality of life. Getting those quotes and putting that in your appeal letter can be very impactful. But these are just a couple random quotes from patients uh, expressing the impact of their uh, skin manifestations during cancer therapy. Uh, we have some nice data looking at how does this impact, and no surprise, um, a good number of these patients are saying that the skin toxicities are worse than the disease itself. Uh, the majority were not referred to a dermatologist. Uh, they were just probably given some random over-the-counter cream and, and told to suck it up. Uh, even more concerning, which we'll talk about a little in a little bit, is that a lot of these skin manifestations are markers for treatment success. So the oncologist is like, yes, you have a horrible rash. That means you're getting better. And the patient's like, I hate you. So there's definitely a disconnect there. Um, and I think a good number of them would be happier if they referred to one of us to manage these issues and maybe even get in before they start therapy, which would be what happens in an ideal world. What about cost? That's always a big topic, you know, the cost of healthcare. Well, the cost of these well-known side effects are astronomical. And so these, these are just come, you know, random numbers. These are actually numbers from only a, just a few years ago. And I would argue that given that these drugs are more readily available, this cost is going up even higher. So wouldn't it be amazing, not only if we can get these patients in early to limit the duration of these reactions, but if we can get them in before they start therapy and actually stop a lot of these reactions. And I think that's one of the primary goals of supportive oncodermatology. So here is our first ARAS case. Uh, a 50-year-old man with a history of colorectal cancer has been recently treated with a number of drugs due to lack of response. What medication most likely caused this painful eruption on the hands and feet? And you have 10 seconds to answer. All right, so most people said C. Actually, the answer is A. Now, I'm glad people put C, because I'm gonna talk about what doxorubicin can cause, which can actually look a little like this, but I'll kind of help distinguish between the two, which what you guys are thinking of, acral erythema of chemo, or uh, hand-foot syndrome, uh, which is a little different than what we're seeing here, which what you're seeing are these very hyperkeratotic plaques, extremely painful plaques over pressure-dependent areas. So this is a hand-foot skin reaction, or HFSR for short, due to multi-kinase inhibitors. Uh, there are a lot of them. 
as the name infers, multi-kinase, they're going after a lot of different receptors, um, and they're used for a whole host of different cancers. Um, most of these are not used, I believe, for, um, for non-melanoma or melanoma skin cancer. This is really outside of our world. I would say most commonly I'm seeing these used in the setting of colorectal cancer. Um, but you can see the, you know, the answer choice, regorafenib, 60% of these patients are gonna get this syndrome, this very painful hyperkeratotic syndrome on the hands and feet. So as I mentioned, this happens in areas of pressure, areas of trauma. I mean, in this one patient here, you can see even, it even can happen a little bit on, on the stub below the knee, but you're seeing on the feet, can happen on the hands, elbows. So anywhere where there's pressure or trauma, we can see this certainly emerge. Where what I think most people are thinking about was this, the acral erythema of chemotherapy, doxorubicin, or also known as adriamycin, a common offender where you get this broad erythema that's a cytotoxic reaction to the concentration of that drug in the eccrine coils. So that's a direct cytotoxic reaction where with the multi-kinase inhibitors, we're not 100% sure what's actually going on. We have identified some risk factors, so unfortunately women get this more than men. Liver mets seem to be a common theme with a lot of the targeted therapy reactions. I'm not really sure why that is. How long someone has been on therapy, hypertension might play a role because we think this has something to do with vascular dysfunction in these areas. And certainly genetics plays a role in everything. It's kind of a cop-out. Oh, it's genetics, that's why you get this. I mean, but certainly we have to consider that. Now, in terms of timing, usually their highest risk is five weeks into therapy. And it's important to think about with the different reactions, because some are very early on. Some are two weeks in. Here, it would be five weeks in that we seem to see this at its peak. It is dose dependent. Maybe the more things you block, the more likely that this will happen. As I mentioned, hypertension may play a role because we think that possibly there's something to do with vascular dysfunction. You know, you think about VEGF, for example, involved in angiogenesis. Um, and maybe it may concentrate in the eccrine ducts. We know that certain multikinase inhibitors can, not all of them do. So we grade it, and these grading systems, I, I argue like a lot of grading systems, aren't perfect. But you know, if you have some mild disease, very simple things, and this is gonna be a common thing with the management of all cancer-related therapy uh, side effects. So good moisturization, meaning moisturizers to damp skin, protection, gloves, pads, things you put in the shoes, anything that will limit friction, and then urea, which I'll harp on. I think urea does have a role here. We're not sure why, but there's some evidence that suggests that urea can be very helpful. Bump it up, a little more painful, a little more severe. I would argue, personally, if a patient's coming in with this, I'm not gonna be like, hey, use a moisturizer. They're gonna get the other stuff, even if they're somewhere between one and two. They're gonna get a class one steroid from me. They're gonna get local numbing medications. Actually, lidocaine 5% ointment is over the counter. They just have to ask the pharmacist from behind the desk for it. I also give a lot of lidocaine prilocaine combos and have them do it under occlusion because the skin of the hands and feet is so thick how much is really gonna get through. Um, and then if they're in a lot of pain, if we're more migrating to two to three, I do use um, antineuroleptics that have a nice impact on nerve transduction. I love gabapentine. Um, I use a lot of it in my practice and you can dose up very quickly and I'll talk about it a little bit more with some other side effects. Also pregabalin can be useful. Um, you may wanna consider dose reduction here. The second main goal for supportive oncodermatology is to prevent us from doing this. You know, uh, oncologists are like, oh my God, you have a little rash, let's stop your therapy altogether. That's saving your life. 
not a good plan. Um, so our goal here is to get the patient through, manage their skin problems so they can continue on therapy. So unless someone's really a three, a hot mess, and I can't control them with prednisone in addition to all this, um, then I will talk to the oncologist to try and do a dose reduction or a short vacation. Um, but I think if you're aggressive from the get-go, you can really limit that cessation of therapy. So here's some examples, you know, mole skin, um, you know, urea I think is extremely uh, uh, impactful. Um, Barrier protectant, so zinc oxide paste, oldie but certainly goodie, but it's disgusting and gets all over everything. Um, I think Tetrix uh, certainly is a nicer option for that because it has similar uh, barrier protection, but it's not as obtrusive and is also invisible. So there are these various protectants. I also like the kind of waxes, you know, the paraffin waxes that also form a nice film over the skin. So as I mentioned, urea does have some meat behind it. There is some evidence that urea can help decrease all grades of hand-foot uh, sk uh, skin reactions um, from multi-kinase inhibitors. We don't know if it's really the urea or just a cream. This was not a really well-controlled uh, study. They compared to best supportive care, whatever that means. Uh, but it, urea is pretty simple, except for getting it covered. I don't know how many of you, you know, probably people from around the country here, but urea for some reason is hard to get covered nowadays. I don't know why that is. There are some over-the-counter formulations. There's a 30% over-the-counter now. Um, and I think you can go on Amazon and buy like 41% somehow. I don't know how that's Legal, but who cares? Um, but I think it is can be difficult to get prescription urea nowadays. All right, ARIS case number two. 55-year-old woman with a history of breast cancer, recently treated with a whole bunch of chemotherapeutic agents, now on anastrozole, comes in with this. What caused this nail change? Okay, so it was actually docetaxel. Um, you know, I see that people, cyclophosphamide is a very toxic drug, but the taxanes are notorious for causing onycholysis. Now, if this patient, just in a complete aside, if you saw this and this patient was not a cancer patient and they were coming in for acne and eczema and a whole bunch of therapies, Doxycycline is also a known offender for causing photoonycholysis, where this is a little different. This is onycholysis, sometimes even hemorrhagic onycholysis, due to direct injury to the nail bed. Um, so, as I mentioned, this is direct injury. This is a toxic drug. It can be painful. Hemorrhagic is more often the norm, to be quite honest. I see a lot of blood under these nails. Um, can cause a lead to subungual abscess. These patients are in pain, and you, depending on the degree, you have to be pretty aggressive with it. Um, other drugs can do it. You know, as I mentioned, the taxanes are number one, but doxorubicin can also do it. But taxane, if this was a board question or some type of, you know, board, you know, some type of certification exam, uh, the taxanes would be the number one choice here. Um, they occur in a lot of patients. I would argue it's higher than 44%. I don't think I've ever seen a patient receiving a taxane who didn't have any preventive therapy not develop this to some degree. Um, a lot of patients report functional impairment and it can be pretty high grade. You know, one of the earliest cases in my supportive oncodermatology clinic was a patient with breast cancer who came, who not only had horrible onycholysis, but severe draining perinicia um, that really required class one steroids, oral antibiotics, doxycycline from an anti-inflammatory perspective, um, and was about to throw in prednisone, but she ended up getting better pretty quickly on that regimen. Um, now, there's this kind of like 
taxane onchalysis plus. This was called Pateo syndrome, which is periarticular thenar erythema with onchalysis. The name actually describes what it is, which is so rare. Someone decided they didn't need to name it after themselves. They'll actually give a name that's useful here. And the name describes what you see. You get this erythema on the thenar eminence uh, over certain joint spaces and onchalysis. And this picture uh, from Beth McClellan up at Einstein, I believe captures it perfectly. You see that erythema, you see the onchalysis, you get every, fe every feature of this syndrome. And it is seen up to a lot of patients. It's very possible that uh, your patient might not put two and two together, that they may have something more distally, they're focused on the nails, but they may even pick up on the erythema elsewhere. So it's important to look in these locations. The other thing that patients don't often know, they're told it will get better when you're done with therapy. False. That doesn't always happen. Uh, in this one study, about 27% of patients had permanent, permanent onycholysis, even well after therapy years later. Um, and I, I would say it may even be higher than that. I think there are opportunities to intervene here to prevent that from happening. How does it happen? Well, I think the simplest answer is toxicity. Toxicity, toxicity, toxicity. You get damage to the skin, the vasculature, the nerves, you name it. Um, so, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, this is damaged, but we have to think about it for now and for later. So how do we manage this? So very simple things first. You know, being that you're getting this separation, it's easier for organism, organisms to get in there. And so they are at higher risk for infection. So you may need to use antibiotics. Um, I personally like from the get-go, either before starting or early in therapy or any point, doing one-to-one -one white vinegar to water soaks a couple times a week. Very simple, dip your fingers in for a couple minutes. Simple, antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory. Um, just like uh, what was mentioned before with the hand-foot syndrome, um, you know, I, I talk about a lot about protection, limiting trauma, moisturizers to damp skin. I tell patients to trim the nail back to where the connection still is. Um, I also have them, anytime they're washed their hands, to put a thick layer of something, you know, more an, uh, an, um, an ointment-based product, uh, whether, you know, you know, something like petrolatum, under the nail to kind of serve as an artificial glue to kind of seal and hopefully trap the nail down. Another thing I do, which uh, I, there is no real evidence for, but I've had some success with, is I use a combination of typically tazeratine around the nail fold, tazeratine 0.1% around the nail fold, which can regulate nail formation where the nail matrix is, um, as well as I use nail hardeners. Um, there are two, I believe they're prescription, Genador and Nuvale. I have no financial interest with either. So I usually will start them on this very early. And anecdotally, I don't see as, as severe reaction without doing anything. Um, and then I even have them continue, especially the tazeratine, because it does tell the nail matrix how to make the nail and hopefully the nail bed underneath and of course that adhesion. Don't forget infection. Um, you know, if you have lots of drainage, you know, culture. That patient I mentioned who had all that drainage, the cultures were negative, but always culture. You see pus, please culture it. Um, there are ways to, uh, beyond what I already mentioned, there are evidence-based ways to hopefully prevent this. Cryotherapy, cooling has been shown, um, and we actually recently published a meta-analysis at GW, which I'll show you the reference later, showing that cooling can limit this damage. It's just tough. You know, we have a device for the scalp called the Dignicap. We don't have the same thing for the hands, and the Dignicap strength is that it's constantly pumping in cold air, and it's cold. This is ice packs. They warm up very quickly. Someone's getting their infusion for hours. So while I do recommend this to patients, it is an onerous and expensive task, but it certainly has been shown to be helpful. All right, case three, 75 year old man, history of non-small cell lung cancer, treated with orlotinib three weeks ago, develops this itchy rash. 
what should be included as part of your initial treatment for this therapy side effect? Excellent. So the majority said doxycycline. That's the correct answer. And I think the papillopustular eruption of EGFR inhibitors has really percolated throughout the derm literature, which is great. I think there's better awareness for this. Um, so there are high, there's a broad range of degrees of how severe this can be. It used to be called the acneiform eruption, but because histologically it looks nothing like acne, we're really trying to move away from that nomenclature. Though it can be really confusing because we use acne treatments predominantly for this. Uh, but it is by no means acne. Um, in terms of why it happens, well, the targets of you know EGFR, also HER2, um, these are involved in cell proliferation, survival. These play a big role in, oh, I don't know, the survival and turnover of the epidermis, as the name infers. So blocking this can certainly have downstream effects on the skin itself. Um, there are a lot of them out there used for a lot of different types of cancers. Uh, therefore, we will be seeing a lot of this. As I mentioned, also HER2 inhibitors. We were so pigeonholed, thinking EGFR, EGFR, EGFR. HER2, which is used for breast cancers, this can also be a cause, and I have seen this. And actually, the oncologist called me. It was like, the patient's on a HER2 inhibitor. It can't be that. And I'm like, it actually can. Sorry. PubMed, I don't know. Like, yes, it can cause it, clearly. Um, so as I mentioned, not just EGFR inhibitors, a lot of drugs can do this, but EGFR is certainly number one. But if you see this in a patient who's not on EGFR inhibitor, don't just assume it's not that because of that kind of connection. Um, so we see increased uh, keratinocyte apoptosis, increased cell attachment, which is probably why we're seeing this almost acneiform-like picture, papillopustular picture, getting occlusion of follicular ostea, but we also see increased sensitization to UV. So while, yes, doxycycline was the right answer, um, photoprotection is definitely central to managing this, but even possibly preventing it. Onset, I mentioned five weeks with hand foot syndrome to, uh, uh, with respect to multikinase inhibitors. This is in one to two weeks. Happens really quick, quickly. Peak intensity at four weeks. Affects seborrheic areas, and as the name infers, papules and pustules. This is an extremely disabling side effect. Um, physically, emotionally, um, patients hate this. Oncologists love it because it is certainly a sign that the drug is working. And there was this one study where they looked at how the oncologists viewed these skin reactions in terms of, oh, is this a serious deal, versus how the patient looked at it, and there was a big disconnect. Physicians, meaning oncologists, were like, eh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something we should think about it. Patients, super, super unhappy about this. Now, it can be mild, can look like this. You know, could could be look like you know it was like mild acne, or you could get the rugby injury of the papillopustular eruption, as you see with tretazudumab, um, where this patient looks like nodulocystic acne. Now, this is one of my patients recently who came in right before Thanksgiving, urgent, urgent case. You know, I was called by his oncologist, get him in. This patient is devastated. He can't enjoy his Thanksgiving holiday with his family. So here he had these kind of crusted papillopustular lesions on his scalp, but he also had this. So, this is so we have to also consider patients can get more than one reaction. This was radiation dermatitis. He was both on an EGFR inhibitor and getting external beam radiation. Patients can get any one of these and multiple of all the things we're talking about. 
So we do have a grading system, uh, which is a little, I guess, little easier to think about. It's not you know, just one, two, three, you know, mild, bad, and horrific. Um, but certainly we have a great opportunity to limit stopping the medication, as I did in that patient actually, um, and getting them feeling better and enjoying their holidays. All, most of these drugs can do it. Uh, penetumumab, probably the highest rate risk for that. So getting a good medication history is gonna be important. Um, Who's at risk? Well, I think you know lighter, lighter skin individuals because sun can play a role. Uh, multiple chemotherapies, concurrent radiation therapy, as you saw in that patient, genetics always plays a role. Um, and as I mentioned before, there is that silver lining that our oncologists, oncology friends are so focused on that these reactions, and this is not the only case of this, that these reactions are a sign of, of, of treatment success. And so they actually want to see this um, because it shows, it, it's a visible sign that what they're doing is actually making a difference. Um, and, and this is the data. So all these different uh, EGFR inhibitors, as the reaction went up, survival also went up. Um, and this is just another example of that, actually not from the papillopustular, but from the hand-foot skin reaction um, from the multi-chiasis inhibitors, also a good representation of the reaction parallels good treatment success. Um, so we have a lot of these now. So EGFR inhibitors, we can see autoimmune skin diseases from checkpoint inhibitors like vitiligo. Um, we can, you know, papillopustular reactions with, you know, MEK inhibitors, psoriasiform dermatitis with PD-1 inhibitors. So all of these, say to us, yes, the medication is working, but why can't the patient have their cake and eat it too? Why can't we control these things, let them get their therapy, get better, but not have a horrific experience going through it? So the treatment for uh, papillopus eruption is as follows, but I would argue that it would be amazing to get this on board before they get it. So this is the treatment for when they get it, uh, but the first three especially, an oral tetracycline, typically doxycycline, 100 twice a day, good photoprotection, having a low-potency topical steroid or a retinoid on hand, starting this before therapy, and I say about two weeks before therapy, has been shown to make a difference. And there's a study to prove this from Sloan Kettering. Preemptive treatment actually limited this. So in the best of cases, the oncology team knows, I'm going to start an EGFR inhibitor, I'm going to start a HER2 inhibitor, get that patient in to see us and we can get them started on this. Or hey, if they feel comfortable, start these things from the get-go. Um, and because there are only so many of us, let's be honest. So you know, really disseminating this information is so important to help these patients. Now, I'm starting to use isotretinoin more and more because I am seeing significant recalcitrance to this approach, and I'm seeing patients who already get the reaction rather than the preemptive strike. Um, Low-dose isotretinoin, like maybe half to 0.75 mg per kg, does a pretty sweet job, as you see in this case. And then this was the guy I showed you before. This is two months in, 40 milligrams once a day. He is 100% clear of everything. I mean, not to say that we didn't do other things other than isotretinoin, obviously topical steroids, good skin care, he had radiation dermatitis, good local wound care also. Um, but Lotus isotretinoin, he is doing beautifully. Um, so you know, the other thing that we have to consider is what will oncology say about this preemptive strike? You know, they love this reaction. It tells them it's a visible marker for treatment success. If you remove it, one, you're taking away their biomarker, but two, does it impact the success of that treatment? And all of the uh, data we have to date says that managing these reactions has absolutely no impact on treatment outcomes for this specifically. 
That isn't always true, unfortunately. So this was a recent case uh, in the Journal of Medicine of a patient on a PD-1 inhibitor who developed uh, psoriasis, which is a known uh, side effect. So we can see psoriasis. I've actually been seeing a lot of lichen planus to PD-1 inhibitors, um, just as an aside, uh, which is pretty resistant to topical steroids. Just, just a, a practical pearl, low-dose acetretin or even isotretin also works really well um, for that because I use that already in my practice for lichen planus. But in this case, this patient developed psoriasis, so they're like, oh, let's, let's treat it. Let's use an IL-17 blocker, which worked, as you see here, but their tumor response actually was, was impacted. And that's not a huge you know, a surprise given messing with the immune system can certainly affect how the immune system clears cancer. So there are cases where intervening can be problematic. So I think it's always good for that communication. Talk to the oncologist, but everything we know about the management of the uh, papillopus eruption, all those, isotretinoin, uh, doxycycline, do not impact treatment success. A lot of other things can happen, peronychia, similarly, as I mentioned, with the taxanes, uh, fissures, brittle nails, um, hyperkeratotic skin, um, EGFR inhibitors and peronychia, very well established, but a lot of drugs can do this. So it's not specific to that. Um, can happen early, can happen late, typically affects the larger digits, because uh, those are probably the ones that are most traumatized, and they can get infected uh, very easily. Um, prevention, we kind of mentioned this a little bit, you know, comfortable shoes, padding, moleskin, barrier protectants. I mentioned the one-to-one -one soaks, which I use pretty regularly in my practice, even prophylactically. Um, potent topical steroids. I know, I know steroid phobia is more in the patient world, but it is in the physician world as well. My rule is go strong or go home. That's it, just hit them hard, give them a class one, especially on the hands and feet. You really think they're gonna get systemic absorption? Absolutely not. There was actually, as an aside, there was a nice paper, I think last year in the JDD um, by Tina Butani's group at UCSF, where they looked at ultra-potent uh, topical steroid use and systemic absorption and side effects. And they determined from their meta-analysis, you have to apply 50 grams of ultra-potent topical steroid over the body weekly to have any HP acid suppression or adrenal insufficiency. That's not going to happen here. Uh, and of course, the action using oral antibiotics. I also like Dermabond or liquid Band-Aid for the fissures. You squeeze a little in, squeeze the skin together. It's like what we used to do with um, Crazy Glue. Um, same thing with fissures. You know, fissures and perinicchia very often go hand in hand. Um, the stabilized hypochlorous acid formulations are anti-inflammatory and anti-infective. Um, I don't know how actually how many of them are still available because they keep switching hands and it's hard to know who's marketing what these days. Um, but also, as I mentioned, you know, topical steroids, liquid glues, common themes here. Other things can happen, lengthening of the eyelashes, so you can get this kind of curling in that can then affect the eye. Extremely dry skin, ichthyotic skin, using a combination of emollients to damp skin, mild soap use, and keratolytics. I talked about urea before, it's great if you can get it. There is better access with the over-the-counter form, that's 30%, as I mentioned, but also I, I'm almost positive you can get caramel on Amazon, which I, I don't know how, but if you can get it, you can get it. All right, 3B, so part B of this. Patient on EGFR inhibitor, papillopustular eruption, was doing great on doxy, topical steroids. You are kicking this thing in the butt. All of a sudden, this happens. What do you do? What's the next step? All right, culture of pustule. 
All right, so, so I've been kind of hitting on this, that these patients are at higher risk for infections, and we know that certain drugs will have even a higher risk, like the EGFR inhibitors, probably related to the barrier disruption. You know, listen, we, we have over 500 species of organisms living on our skin right at this moment. We are a giant Petri dish. We're more probably bacteria than we are even human from a genetic makeup. But when you mess up that Petri dish, certain players emerge, and that's where you get into pathology and infection. So always culture, don't just assume it's an inflammatory reaction to the drug. Um, this is an example from one patient, uh, you know, we cultured, um, was actually tetracycline resistant. Um, and I, I don't think this paper is out yet, but a little, you know, um, kind of sneak peek of a paper that should be coming out, I believe in the JAD soon, um, looking at increasing resistant patterns from using doxycycline long-term for these patients. Um, it's growing, so we have to be mindful of you combining these with topical antimicrobials to limit resistance of cuneus flora, but also cycling through or even using non-antibiotic alternatives like isotretinoin. Um, there is some data supporting that staff loves this. You know, we talk about staff loving atopics, staff loves EGFR inhibitors, allows it to overgrow and cause problems. All right, case number four, patient on allotinib for metastatic lung cancer, prevents with severe pruritus, not responding to the prednisone that the ER gave them. It was a Medrol pack, of course. Uh, antihistamines, topical therapy, gabapentin. What do you do next? Yeah, now this is a tough one. And phototherapy is actually not a bad option. I find that phototherapy is really good for pruritus associated with malignancy, not necessarily associated with some of the medications. Um, I didn't really expect anyone to get this right because this is an emerging kind of trend in the supportive oncodermatology world. A prepotent is a neurokine receptor inhibitor. Um, it is approved for managing the nausea associated with chemotherapy, which is probably the only way you're gonna get this approved as it's a very expensive drug. And these patients are cancer patients, you can argue it. I think this drug has a lot of utility outside of that paritis for parigonodularis, but I can never get it covered. It's super expensive, but this is a patient population who probably can get it. Paritis is very common in cancer, but also very common in EGFR inhibitors. Unclear why this is happening, clearly something to do with the nerves, uh, but what component, we don't really know. Um, so there is some evidence that a prepotent, um, which comes in a couple different flavors, there are these bliss packs where it's a three time a week dosing, that's typically the, do the dosing I give, um, had significant effects. Uh, this dosing is 125, 80, and 80, but as I said, it's very expensive. It's hard to get this covered long term. There are newer versions of this coming down the pipeline, uh, going down the, the regulatory pathway for parigonodularis, so we should have access to more of these, but really works nicely in paritis associated with EGFR inhibitors. Other things you certainly can try, I mentioned the hypochlorous acid formulations, they're actually indicated for itch. That's what they're being marketed as. I mean, there was, I believe there was like Orostat and Olivacin and I'm trying to remember the other ones. I don't know, there are a whole bunch of them, um, but those, those were all marketed for itch and that's what they were approved for as devices. Um, a new player on the block, Strontium 4%, is found in a product called Tricom. No conflict of interest with them. Uh, Gil Yosipovich actually did the trials for that. I recommend that a lot, hit or miss. Um, and then if you're really in trouble and you have a good compounding pharmacy, pharmacy the Yosipovich cocktail of ketamine, amitriptyline, and lidocaine works wonders, but just warn the patient if they use a little too much of it, they can actually get high on it. And I had a patient who was a drug counselor who had generalized paritis, used this, was sitting in a session, was looking around, he goes, I'm, I'm messed up, and I hope no one sees my pupils. Um, so just be cautious with that, but this combo works beautifully, but it is expensive, and they don't give you a lot of it. 
In terms of systemics, as I mentioned before, I use a lot of gabapentin and pregabalin. Pregabalin is a controlled substance, so it's a little harder to get. Um, I also use mirtazapine. The funny thing about mirtazapine is the lower the dose, the more soporific, the more sedating it is. So I'll usually start a patient on either 15 or 30, even though higher dose, less sedating. And I'll say, after a couple of weeks, how tired are you in the morning? If they're like, no, I feel great, actually, and they're still itching, I'll have them go lower. I typically do not start them at seven and a half because that will definitely knock them out. That said, there are patients who are saying, like, literally, knock me out, please. And then I will give them the lower dose. Um, but yeah, my, my first line is to be gabapentin, start low, but you, the ceiling is very, very high in terms of the max dosing for gabapentin. Case number five, patient with a remote history of breast cancer comes in with this itchy bump on the lumpectomy scar. What do you do next? Excellent. Yep, you're going to punch biopsy that because you're going to be concerned for cutaneous met. And we do see this pretty commonly, not necessarily after cancer diagnosis, but actually before the cancer diagnosis. I mean, actually a show of hands, who here has diagnosed an internal malignancy from a skin biopsy? Yeah, that, that is not surprising in this. I wish I could capture those numbers and report that. That is not surprising. We do this all the time, highlighting how important our specialty is. Um, but this can come before, it can come after. When in doubt, cut it out. I mean, that's such a simple thing to remember, simple thing to do. Worst case scenario, you biopsy a scar and you can reassure the patient it's not a met and you're still the hero. Um, most common locations for breast cancer will be thoracic. You know, cancers can be lazy. They don't want to go far. Uh, renal cell, though, does tend to like to go to the scalp because of it's warm and the vasculature there. Um, facial locations, eyelid and nose, are also common locations. Now, skin involvement, forget even Mets, there are a lot of flavors of this, and I think it's important to know about them. Some can look like scleroderma. Some could even look like erysipelas. So if you have a patient with a known history and they're coming in what looks like a skin infection, biopsy. It could be inflammatory breast cancer. Um, now, in, in, in the textbook world, they look smooth. They're dermal papules and nodules. They literally have a flag on them that says, I'm cancer. Um, and so they can look like this. And it, it'd be hard to argue that you wouldn't want to biopsy this. But it's when it's not so obvious uh, that gets a little trickier. Like, you know, could you think of like, oh, it's just a hypertrophic scar. Is it something that's been picked? Does it look like an SK even? Um, that's where it gets a little trickier. Um, this was even probably trickier than that. This is a patient who came into the ER uh, at Weiler Hospital in the Bronx, and I was called to evaluate for a burn, because that's what the patient said, and we always believe the patient, that she burned herself cooking. First of all, she should probably order in from now on, if that's the case. Uh, but second of all, that's not a burn. So my first worry was this was, this, this was melanoma. I mean, look at all that pigment. And on first glance at histology, yeah, that's what it looks like. But this is actually pigmented breast cancer. And that's what she had. She, this clearly has been going on for a super, super long time. Um, and clearly she was in denial. This was not a burn. She did not burn herself. Um, but, but cutaneous mets can certainly appear in many interesting ways. So typically it's a sign of advanced disease, unfortunately. Um, you know, it could, you can get a flare of cutaneous mets with a distant metastasis. So you can have a solid you know, uh, organ met in conjunction with that skin met. Uh, may indicate maybe if you, the, the primary unknown. If you think someone has cancer but not sure what it is, the skin could tell you that. And immunohistochemistry can certainly help. But survival rates are not good, unfortunately. All right, next question. Patient completed radiation therapy for breast cancer and actually has the foresight to say, Will, you know, what, what's the most likely skin cancer I might develop because of this radiation in that area? 
probably some better music, right? So it actually is basal cell, but you know, listen, basal squame, it's all keratinocytes, right? So um, as long as you're thinking of that, that these patients are increased risk for non-melanoma skin cancer, you're thinking the right things and you're educating your patients the right way. So secondary malignancies, the way to think about it is the longer someone has a history of cancer, the greater likelihood. And a lot of this data comes from childhood survivors. Uh, the other thing goes with the medications. You know, a lot of these patients could be on immunosuppressants, uh, but also chemotherapy and of course radiation can increase the risk of cancer. But in the field of radiation, basal cells seem to be the most common. So this trend just shows you that over time, that if someone has an early diagnosis, the risk for non-melanoma skin cancer will go up and up. So with some of these patients, I'll actually do twice a year full body exams because I think they are at higher risk. And if we're doing this over and over and I feel like they're pretty well educated on doing self exams, I might go down to once a year. Um, we do have some longitudinal groups looking at this. Um, you know, the, the problem I think is not that we don't that we don't know about it; is that patients don't know about it, and that they go through treatment. The oncologist, whether it be the actual oncologist, the nursing team, they don't tell patients about this. So we need to get this information out there. Um, you know, even, even our group at GW has published on the risk of secondary malignancies in patients with underlying cancers um, with higher risk. So we need to tell our friends across the aisle that this does happen. These patients need to get in for surveillance. Um, and along those lines, you know, focusing on radiation specifically, is this happening? And the answer is no. This was from a survey study that Beth McClellan did um, of radiation oncologists and their teams, and majority will not send patients for full body skin exams or even an examination of the radiation site. This is a big problem. We've got to change this. The other thing to consider is certain drugs can actually cause new neoplasms. And we're seeing this with the BRAF inhibitors. We're seeing a whole range of keratinocyte-derived tumors uh, from anything as simple as actinic keratosis to squames to benign, uh, benign growths like Sebcares, as well as even Veruca vulgaris. This was a patient of mine who was on a BRAF inhibitor who, who had this eruption of these kind of warding appearing uh, papules all over the place. This one uh, on the, uh, by the eye was actually read as a squamous cell carcinoma. Interestingly enough, though, he was able to go off his BRAF inhibitor, all melted away. So the BRAF inhibitor is actually driving this. You take it away, if the patient can, they literally all melt. I sent him for Mohs, and by the time he got there, it was gone. There was nothing there. The whole area filled up. We did a biopsy just to make sure, because obviously that can happen. You biopsy something, and the site heals beautifully. There was nothing there. So if they can go off of it, it will get rid of these neoplasms. We see it in other drugs, so we can see KAs, invasive SECs with serafinib. Um, treatment, obviously, is removing them through different mechanisms, but depending on the drug, depending on the patient, you may want to consider some chemopreventative strategies. Oral retinoids, acetrine has been used forever in the transplant patient population to prevent squamous cell carcinomas that we know these patients are going to get. And I am using in some of these, these cases, patients with multiple SECs. Uh, more recently, uh, nicotinamide, 500 milligrams twice a day, emerged as a possible chemopreventive strategy that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I'm not putting everyone on this because it's more of a lifelong burden. Like that's, you know, it gets expensive. You're buying this, you're, you're taking this forever. You're not going to stop it. Um, so I'm putting this, my patients who are high risk, three or more skin cancers, or patients who have a reason to get more skin cancers, I am recommending this to them to uh, kind of keep going with it.
Um, another example with pembrolizumab, PD-1 inhibitor, uh, eruptive KAs. So we are seeing the emergence of new tumors in patients receiving drugs for other tumors, probably because there's some salvage pathways that are being activated, you know, these kind of off-target effects of these very targeted therapies. All right, case number seven. What medication most likely contributed to this 30-year-old woman's hair loss for four years after breast cancer? We get some like Wu-Tang next? That'd be great, I like the variety. Um, all right, so we got some diversity here. So the answer is actually docetaxel, back to the taxanes. If one thing you walk away from today and thinking about you know, chemotherapies, taxanes really screw up the skin. Hair, skin, and nails, they do it all. So taxanes are number one. Um, now all these drugs, maybe sunitinib not so much, all chemo can cause antigen effluvium and even telogen effluvium, but persistent hair loss, like you're seeing this woman, where it looks like she just finished her regimen, taxanes are very well known for causing that persistent hair loss. Um, so chemotherapy-induced alopecia effects, I'd probably say higher than 65%. Um, many consider it's the worst side effect, and actually a good number of women will decline chemotherapy for their almost certain death because they're worried about the hair loss. So clearly this is a very impactful side effect, um, and, and, and that's even more so even from you know, a double mastectomy. So we need to be mindful of this. Um, I think the hair loss has a couple implications. First, hair is a very big part of who we are, both men and women. But also, that hair loss, not even the scalp, but the eyebrows, it's a sign to the world, I have cancer. There's a complete loss of privacy. So anything we can do to limit that kind of obvious red flag to the world can really make a big difference for these patients. Lots of drugs do it. I'm not going to read through this list, uh, but almost any chemotherapy, given how you know, the, the, the bulge of the hair follicles turns over very quickly, um, they certainly are susceptible to these. Now, it's probably a mixed picture. You know, the antigen effluvium as opposed to telogen effluvium will happen in a matter of weeks after starting, where telogen effluvium usually kicks in maybe three to four months after the inciting stress on the body. So it's kind of a double whammy. This just keeps going and going. Um, now, hair, for the, many of those, hair will regrow, but it never comes back the same way. Show of hands, who has heard that from their patients, that like, my hair came back, but it's not the same. It's different. It's not my hair. Yeah, that, that's pretty common. Uh, show of hands, who thinks here that the oncologist tells their patients about that? Yeah, trick question. They don't. And, and so they're shocked. And so we end up sometimes being the bad guys telling them about this. So here's kind of a nice progression. Usually by week six, you're seeing the peak of the antigen effluvium. Week 28, so hopefully this person's off their cycle. They start getting some regrowth. But what is regrowing? You know, how is it coming back? Um, in children, you know, we, we, do, we do see, obviously, kids get, get cancer, too, um, and we do see same patterns. Within six weeks, usually they lose all their hair. It'll start to regrow, um, and then regrowth will ultimately stop about seven months after therapy. And it's important to know that because let's say you have someone come in a year later, and they're like, look, I didn't get all my hair back. A year after stopping, we have some data that will help guys and say, you know what? It's possible you may not get the hair back, and, and they kind of go into the chronic CIA category. Um, so yeah, we, as I said, we have some good information, more from kids, and it's helpful because the kids are treated and then, then we follow them over time. These registries are very helpful. And so even if they got their hair back, reduced density, change in color, change in texture, we have to prepare our patients for this. Um, also endocrine therapy. So patients go on chemo, they have their antigen effluvium, the hair starts to grow back, but then they're put on one of those hormonal therapies that also can affect uh, the hair. And more, that's probably more like a hair thinning than a true loss, but ultimately over time with repeated hair cycles, the hairs get thinner, thinner, shorter, shorter, and they disappear, very much like an androgenic cycle.
So here's a nice example of patients who have permanent hair loss associated with taxanes, varying degrees, all of them unified by how disabling this is. Um, and as I mentioned, certainly younger age plays a bigger role because you hit them earlier, there's more time for things to go wrong. Now, there are some things we can do. So minoxidil, there's some data that starting minoxidil early on can certainly help. Um, you know, it helps the hair, not so much prevent the hair loss, but it actually shortens the time to when the hair comes back. So there does seem to be some role for this. And I do put all of my patients on, not 2%, I don't think 2% really works. Every patient gets 5% foam for men because it's cheaper. There is what's called the pink tax, that the one for women, which is exactly the same thing, just in a pink box. Um, it's exactly the same. The one for men is cheaper and you can get it in a tri-pack, several months supply online versus one at a time. So it actually is cheaper. So everyone gets that. Cool cap, a lot of evidence to support. It's an FDA approved device. Insurance often does not cover it. It is not comfortable. It isn't. Um, but I have had a lot of patients use it and it definitely works. There's no question about it. It works so well that actually the label has been extended to include chemos for other therapies beyond breast cancer. Uh, this was that study I mentioned, the meta-analysis we did at GW, looking at preventive strategies for taxane-related um, you know, side effects of the hair, skin, and nails, and the evidence definitely supports Kult's um, uh, cryotherapy for hair loss. Um, now, things that will affect the success, well, it'll be what drug are they on and what's the dosing. Um, liver mets, yet again, plays a big role. I don't know why, but the data suggests that. How well does the cap fit? It's a one-size-fits-all for the most part. Maybe they're two sizes. And it's uncomfortable. Patients often stop it because it's super, 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 super cold, and you have this on for several hours. Another thing that's emerging, which I'm also doing, is uh, Babataprost. So trade name Latisse, which is over, uh, which is is prescription, but a cosmetic. But there, is, you know, for the ophthalmologic world, there is a, uh, you know, there is a prescription form that if you can argue that they need it, you can get it. Um, this will help the eyelashes and eyebrows come back faster. Um, some anecdotal evidence, I usually will start this towards the end of their cycling because they're actively losing that hair, you're wasting money. So as they're towards the end of their, their kind of cycles, that's when I'll start it. And I do find that it does bring the eyelashes and eyebrows back faster. Another thing I'll throw out there, which is still emerging um, and, not, and never been published on, topical vasoconstrictors might be useful for eyebrows because, and, and we already think about this, think about what the cooling does. Cooling causes va local vasoconstriction ultimately, so you're lessening the amount of drug that's getting those locations. If we can lessen the flow, and you could take ice packs to the eyebrows or topical vasoconstrictors, that might also limit the flow to those areas and limit how much hair is lost too. So something to certainly try. Another source of alopecia, not the ulcer, but we're gonna get into what can be related to the ulcer that can cause alopecia. Anyone have an idea what this is? Any thoughts? I can't hear anything. I'm gonna assume I heard basal cell carcinoma and that's what it is. The guy comes in and goes, my barber cut me. You better sue that barber. Um, this was a giant rodent ulcer. This was a basal cell. And so this guy got a hedgehog pathway inhibitor, which one of the almost expected side effects is going to be hair loss because the hedgehog pathway is needed for hair cycling from telogen back to antigen. It is guaranteed. You cannot stop this from happening, but there are ways to maybe limit how it happens. Just for some review, this is the, uh, the sonic hedgehog pathway. You have three major components. Patched, which is an inhibitor of smoothin, which is the, uh, the kind of proto-oncogene. This is the proliferative kind of component that will send a signal to the inside the cell and cause you know, downstream um, you know, proliferation. Um, when hedgehog binds the patch, then there's proliferation. When it's not bound, patch blocks it. 
in uh, basal Nida syndrome, patch is defective. So there's no inhibitor of this proliferative pathway. And so to get around that, these hedgehog inhibitors just go straight after smoothin. They just block smoothin so nothing can happen. Um, however, because of that, we do see a unique side effect profile, um, and as I mentioned, alopecia is guaranteed. That guy I showed you who had um, the kind of pseudo mullet, he, he lost a lot of his hair after a couple months, and he actually said to me, he goes, when can I stop this? My girlfriend doesn't like how my hair looks. And I'm like, did she like that giant basal cell on your neck? Was that like a turn on for her? Because I don't know. Um, but um, what I found, though, for patients who need to stay on this, because some patients, you, you shrink the tumor down small enough where you do then scalp biopsying, and then you cut the thing, whatever is left over out, sometimes they completely melt away. I've had patients who went on a course of like six, seven months, melts away, you have a scar there, and nothing ever comes back. So certainly there are those, those circumstances, but someone who needs to be on it long term, I found that alternate month dosing or alternate bi-weekly dosing, so two weeks on, two weeks off, that can actually lessen some of the side effects while keeping that tumor away. So in summary, um, I think we did a nice kind of rapid fire case-based review of some of the more common side effects. I definitely did not hit on everything, but there's only so much you can get through in an hour and there's only so much you can digest before you have a seizure. So I hope that you kind of walk away from this thinking about some of the more common and more specific side effects of targeted and chemotherapies um, that I think everyone in this room could play a major role in, in someone's care. I can't tell you how many times these patients, just simple interventions, how to moisturize, even what's going to happen so they expect it, it's not a surprise. That alone has brought patients to tears, made them so thankful and happy. Um, and I think we, we have a real opportunity to easily make our patients happy. Um, these problems are significant. They are largely ignored by oncologists. Um, I will say in, um, you know, in academic centers, it's not as difficult to get these, you know, these folks on board. Um, you know, at, uh, at GW, and I will give a shameless plug uh, for those who are in the community, you know, we have this wonderful cancer center and under this a cutaneous oncology program that is a cutaneous C-cell lymphoma clinic, pigmented lesion clinic, high-risk clinic, but we also have the support of Oncodermatology Clinic uh, that is a portal for all those cancer center patients and individuals in the community to come in, hopefully before they start therapy, but at least during, so we can help, help ameliorate a lot of this. So I think we are seeing the emergence of these centers at academic centers, but if you're not at an academic center, you know, as of right now, it, that doesn't really help you. So I think you can be the beacon for support of oncodermatology. You can take this information back to your practices and let people know you like doing this, as long as you do, that you can help these patients and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, your clinic's gonna be full of these folks and you can really make a very uh, impactful, um, you, know, uh, you know, change in direction in their care and their lives uh, really quite easily. So with that, I'm happy, I have a couple minutes left over, I'm happy to take any questions. Um, thank you. Oh, I guess there's also an eval that's, that's blinded, so I don't have to see how much you hate me up the here. The overall performance of the speaker. Thank you, guys. I mean, I'd say it was at least a three and a half, I mean, roughly. <laughs> how useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? All right. All right, so, all right, sorry, I have some questions coming in. So, how long do you treat papillopus eruption with doxybid? Um, 
it's, it can be limitless, uh, truthfully. And, and that's where I think the concern with that paper that should be coming out, I think it was out of the, the group, I want to say, in Stanford. Um, you know, you, you got to keep going with it. And, and the tough part is not so much with uh, EGFR inhibitors, because they do tend to come off them eventually. I find it more issue with the HER2 inhibitors. Those patients are on that for like really, really, really long time. Um, so depending on the patient, what I'll do is if A, they respond uh, to uh, doxy 100 twice a day and they're doing well, I'll reduce them to the 40 milligram control release or doxy 20 twice a day, which is sub-antimicrobial. So maybe after three months or so, which is what the recommendations are for, for acne, that we don't want longer than three months, um, I'll then reduce them to the sub-antimicrobial dosing. And so long as that works, I'll keep going with that, because that you could pretty much be on lifelong, so long as uh, it's not a female patient trying to get pregnant. Um, the other option would be, let's say you do that, it starts coming back. Um, depending on the timing, if they've been off the, the 100 twice a day for like a couple of months, I may put them back on, and you can cycle three months on, a couple of months off, um, or I may just go to low-dose isotretinoin, depending on who the patient is. Uh, would you put a patient with metastatic breast cancer on chemo who has psoriasis on a biologic, or what would your treatment regimen be? That's a great question. Um, they're all great questions. Sorry, don't want to play favorites. Um, so there was a paper that just came out this month in the JDD by David Rosemarin in Boston kind of asking that question. So they did a retrospective chart review looking at patient, psoriasis patients on systemic. So this included premolast as well as biologics with history of cancer. Um, and it did not seem like there was any issue. So what we're really saying is the patient has cancer being treated, could being put on a biologic impact that treatment? Now we saw with the PD-1 inhibitor, interleukin-17 inhibition did play a role. Um, the answer is we really don't know. His study found there was no issue whatsoever. Um, and I believe most of it was someone had a recent history, not during active treatment. My advice would be talk to the oncologist. And I think that's really going to guide it because I think if you jump in and throw a biologic at the patient um, and don't talk to the oncologist, you're going to make an enemy for life. Um, I have found this even with things I know are not a problem. So spironolactone for hair loss or acne in a past breast cancer patient, there's evidence that it's fine to use. And I've had oncologists say, um, like, Pavlovian response, no, you can't do that. And I'll send them the data and say, listen, you know, I think it's okay. And I can change most of their minds. Um, what I would probably recommend is think about treatments. So we said biologic. Think about treatments that we know may actually not even be a bad thing for cancer. So in this setting, um, I would think about methotrexate. I would think about a premolast. Um, based on the mechanisms of certain biologics, um, you know, our concern, you know, TNF blockade, we know there can be some concerns. Uh, TNF alpha kind of ubiquitous. Um, but, you know, if you think about maybe a little upstream, like going after just the activation of T cells with like an IL-1223 or just a 23 blocker, you're probably not going to run into trouble, but we just don't know. So my answer to this would probably be just to be safe, because I know the oncologist is going to say absolutely not. I probably would go with methotrexate, which was a chemo, um, or I'd go with uh, a premolast, which there is some evidence emerging that uh, modulation of cyclic AMP and blocking PD-4 can actually be good for cancer. That's probably where I would start. But the, the short answer is coordinate with the oncologist because they're going to dictate a lot of that. Uh, what brand of nicotinamide do you use and where do you buy it? Um, I honestly just say nicotinamide 500, to be honest. Um, I haven't, I, I agree, there are a lot. Um, it's not because I don't want to sound biased, it's because I just don't know. 
I don't know which one's better than others. Um, I actually very often put the owner, because I have had this question come up and the patient will like, pull up on their phone, look at all these brands. Um, first I say, well, what are the patient, what are the consumer ratings? Because consumers are pretty um, vicious when it comes to that. Um, but also I think my, my general rule of thumb with anything over the counter is go with the bigger name brands versus some niche group, you know, like, um, you know, mother of dirt earth, blah, 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 you know, uh, that has like, it's like literally a PO box is their office. Um, you know, if you go with the big name brands, they actually have the resources to actually uh, test these and have to show that they're stable. I think that's really the biggest thing. So nicotinamide is going to hurt someone, no, but how stable is it? What's the shelf life? So I think that's the kind of rule of thumb, but I don't have a great answer for you. Um, and then last question, because I have like one second. What does and how long would you treat someone with acetran or nicotinamide for high-risk SEC? How about transplant patients who are high risk? It is forever. It is forever. The benefits that you get from either one of those will disappear if you stop them. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't cycle. I mean, nicotinamide, there's no reason to stop. Absolutely no reason to stop. Acetrend, yeah, listen, there are some issues. You know, you really are not supposed to drink on it because alcohol will convert it to a trendate, which literally lives in you practically forever. Um, obviously, hepatotoxicity you have to be concerned about, cholesterol. These concerns are pretty low, um, but it, it, you know, acetrend does come with some side effect profile, so you could certainly cycle, but if you stop them and end that, you know, you know completely stop them, the risk will come back. So the, so the way I lead in is I'm like, this is gonna be lifelong. There may be vacations, but both of these are lifelong. Great, thank you so much for your attention and great questions. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.